0: Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Sean Heritage, Head of Platform Adoption Federal at Authenticate. Sean, I want to have a little quick discussion today about publicly available information. And uh, this is a topic that comes up every now and then, especially in federal information technology circles. And what I always do is I go to Google and type in and try to get magic answers, you know. So I go to Google to type in public available information, and frequently it's contrasted with open source intelligence. And so uh, the acronyms are PAI and OSINT, I think. So so w- let's just start the conversation with defining these two different categories. So I think the easiest way to differentiate between those two is OSINT is a verb. Public
1: available information would be a noun. So open source intelligence is the act of making use of publicly available information. But oftentimes people get confused between the two um, and they equate OSINT as to an intelligence function. And in order to conduct or execute an intelligence function, one must be an intelligence analyst. Hmm. Anyone can make use of publicly available information as we find finding
0: more and more Each day. So what OSINT does is it turns uh, public available information into something that's useful for whatever subjects at hand. Absolutely. It seems to me the transition is from search to filtering to analysis. It seems all well and good when you're searching for a replacement car or a refrigerator. What kind of challenges does this present to the federal government? For example, HHS and NASA make data sets open for the public to garner and look through information. Sometimes this comes under the rubric of crowdsourced information. How does that all fit in the discussion today? Well, across the Department of Defense, there's a term that we use called the essential elements
1: of friendly information. And that is a set of information that, when pieced together, can become extremely useful to those who are interested in learning more about our capabilities or areas of interest within the department. Uh, People are are beginning to understand that the aggregation of web searches coming from an unclassified IP space can be especially damaging, which is one reason I believe the department is pushing for non-attribution tools to conduct what seems on the surface to be benign web browsing. So what is a non-attribution tool? A non-attribution tool would be a tool that is not, does not provide uh, any interested party who is watching your activities on the web be able to attribute the activity
0: to you as an individual or to you or as an organization. So I'll ask a silly question like out kind of a spy movie. So let's say the president of the United States is going to Seattle. He could have people on his staff searching different venues and locations. So it's possible that Um, they could be uh, making themselves vulnerable by doing search through publicly available information, couldn't they? Absolutely. So that that would be an essential element of friendly
1: information is the whereabouts or planned whereabouts of senior officials across the the government or within a private company where the CEO is going to meet uh, for a dinner party, say.
0: So a non-attribution tool, would that be uh, someone going into uh, – a, an, an, an anonymizer source or something like that? Is that what a, a tool is? Something like that? Something to anonymize your searches?
1: A non-attribution tool is, is something that obfuscates your real identity.
0: Great. In marketing, uh, the problem with attribution is real simple. So you see an ad for a car, and then you search for the car on the internet, and, and then you walk into a car dealership, and the car dealership, well, we have to attribute this to uh, our store presence. <laughs> and so the same thing happens, to think, on the internet when there's uh, different uh, sources of attribution. It's hard to, to limit it or, or, or reduce the scope. I don't even know how, how exactly is that done. Is that done through through the browser? Is that done through a platform? How is that usually done? So that is done through the browser, uh, collecting
1: cookies of everywhere that you've gone, um, things that you have clicked on, um, aggregating it, selling it to third parties, And moving on to tailor um, what marketing finds its way to your browser. So for some of us, we appreciate the convenience of being tracked. Um, If we're trying to find a car in your example, uh, we would prefer to be presented with things that we have shown an interest for. Um, In other worlds, we don't want people to know what we're looking at and be fed with those convenient links. Uh, we want to obfuscate what it is we are interested in so as not to play our hand.
0: There's a large line drawn when it comes to agencies that handle defense and intelligence. One big question is what to present to the outside world. So I live in Silicon Valley now. I used
1: to work at an organization called the Defense Innovation Unit. That organization is one of the examples of the federal government's interests in more partnerships with the private sector. So making the private sector more aware of the things that we are interested in doing, um, the capabilities we are interested in developing, and the problems we are interested in solving. So there has been and continues to be a movement for us to share more uh, across the government with our partners in the private sector. So the line to which I believe you are referring has more to do with the unintentional presentation of information, not the intentional sharing interest areas. So publicly available information is increasingly important to intelligence analysts, cybersecurity analysts, criminal investigators, and the like in the accomplishment of their mission. So to me, the line rests firmly on non-attribution. By that, I mean we have a responsibility to afford these individuals the opportunity to do their jobs accessing publicly available information without unintentionally um, making their activities visible
0: to the outside world. In boxing, they talk about telegraphing a move. <laughs> and uh, what can happen is uh, there could be a, um, an analyst telegraphing their move that interested in a specific database, and those people can put a cookie on them and find out exactly what they're trying to find. So so it could prevent some telegraphing of an analyst activities, couldn't it? Absolutely. Now, the concept of open data and sensitive data has piqued the interest of the American public in Congress. In fact, a couple years back, 2017, the House Armed Services Committee urged, I like this word, urged the DoD to get better at managing publicly available information. Start of the show. Tell me about the DoD Directive 311518 that was released just here in June 11th of 2019. So yes, you you mentioned the date, June 11th, 2019. <laughs> it's now
1: late September, and one of the things that I find interesting and intriguing is that nearly everybody I bring up the directive with, it's the first time they heard of. No heard kidding. About um, on the other hand, I completely understand why they're not aware of it. Um, and that's because there are so many initiatives um, across the, the federal space that it's hard to pay attention to all of them. And as a veteran myself, I know that I'm conditioned to focusing on that which is closest to the sled um, on, a, on a due date perspective. So this directive will become more and more um, interesting to individuals that it will be affected by it. And it does three primary things. First thing it does is it elevates and operationalizes the use of publicly available information for the Department of Defense to users outside of the traditional open source intelligence and investigative realms. So one, it, it affects more than just those who are intelligence specialists. Second, it concisely defines what publicly available information is and the importance of leveraging specific tools to access it. For example, not your commercially available web browser. And third, it establishes a PAI advisory council that will ultimately provide that government governance and develop additional clarity as PAI continues to play an increasingly important role in national defense.
0: I notice uh, I have a copy of the directive right in front of me. In fact, that's it's a directive. So it's not a law, it's not a mandate, it's not a suggestion. I, I keep thinking of the folks uh, north of here at NIST. They, they come up with some suggestions that people kind of follow and almost assume it's law. So, so what impact can a directive have? Is this just a suggestion or best practice? At this point in
1: time, I would put it in the category of a suggestion or best practice. Uh, but it clearly articulates a, a role or a, a path toward – Um, it becoming a mandate. So the establishment of the publicly available informational advisory council, the PAC, that organization will slowly but surely turn it into a mandate once it's more firmly um, thought through. So there's a lot that we don't know, a lot that they don't know about how to responsibly move forward, but this is a commitment of a need to move forward once properly informed by subject matter experts from both
0: the public and private sectors. I'm in the classroom all the time, and many times my students wait until the day before an assignment's due, or the hour before the assignment's due to work on it. And it seems to me that with a directive like this, it's not gonna get any weight or any muscle until someone says, well, the Inspector General's coming next week, and Sean, we're gonna have to report for you on what your activities are. So you think this is what's gonna motivate it once it it gets to be more established and it moves up to something that an inspector may take a look at in an audit or something? Absolutely. So I I believe that what this, this directive does so far is it communicates why
1: there needs to be a change and what that change needs to be. What we have not yet done is firmly committed to a how. So to me, this directive is about shaping a how over time. And then once we have that uh, more specific mechanism in place of how we, we want the department to move forward or how the department wants to move forward on their own, then it will become far more important to teammates across the department.
0: Last night I was having dinner with a guy named um, uh, Chase Cunningham, you probably know Chase, and he's uh, operated in some red teams before. That's kind of a fascinating concept, the whole idea of red team and defending team. But I, w- I would guess that uh, uh, the red team simulated attacks, we know that. Do you think that red teams have maybe simulated attacks on samples of data that, that may be released for public consumption? Is that possible? Pure speculation on my point or my part,
1: but I would imagine yes. Um, I know that the red team mindset across the Department of Defense um, is very popular, uh, and it's Im- impacting and influencing ways that uh, that we all think. So I've, I firmly believe that yes, red team the red team mindset maybe not red team specifically, but the mindset, the practice of looking at um, data or operations or websites or picket from an adversarial perspective is informing how we move forward more responsibly in all facets of operations.
0: You know, I I read history books about the founding fathers and Ben Franklin, George Washington, and and, and their, their challenge was balancing things, balancing rights and privileges and laws and, uh, you know, the, the First Ten amendments balancing privacy and security. This is, this is a topic that comes up constantly, the history of the country. And so it seems that the DOD understands that it has assets, information that can be available, and it's trying to do this little dance of privacy and security. But it's, it's easy to talk about, very, very hard to actually engage and do, isn't it?
1: It is. And, and I think there's a lot of, lot of times we frame this conversation around privacy and security as a balance. And I think this is one of those cases where you can do both simultaneously. (laughs) As we more deliberately leverage publicly available information, we will become more knowledgeable about the world around us, thereby allowing us to take actions that will enhance our security. And if we do so in keeping with the intent of this directive, we will simultaneously enhance the privacy of the individuals and organizations engaging with the outside world
0: from their desktop it can get tough to define what is publicly identifiable information. For example, compromised credentials through social engineering can be considered under the wide topic of publicly available information. Are there four or five different categories of ways to understand this, Sean? I think it's it's great that you
1: brought up the relationship between publicly identifiable information and publicly available information. Acronyms are very close, but their definitions are very different. In this directive, one of the things that it does a very good job of is defining publicly available information. And there's about a half a dozen different characteristics that make up publicly available information. Some more obvious than others. Um, but if information has been published or broadcast for public consumption, it's that's PI. obvious.
0: Yeah, we know that one. Sure.
1: If it's available upon request to the public, like FOIA like, stuff. Okay, exactly. we got that. If it's accessible online or otherwise to the public, so go we'll to just Google, Google, we can search. find it. That's good. Yep. Absolutely. If it's available to the public by subscription or purchase, it's also PAI. These also caught me a little off guard, the the need to specify them, but if it could be seen or heard by a casual observer. Would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. If it's made available at a meeting, open to the public.
0: So if a general goes to a a conference and gives a talk, that is publicly available information, isn't it? Even to the lurkers in the background who weren't invited to that (laughs) meeting. Or if
1: it's obtained by visiting a place or attending an event, that is open to the public. So same example. Yeah.
0: That's a good way to crystallize the understanding for a wider audience of what exactly publicly available information is and how it can be used.
1: Yes. And also back to the PII aspect of it. So PII over time can become PAI. And that's one of the things that we are trying to protect or prevent.
0: It can be dangerous. It can affect jobs. It can affect employment, couldn't it? Absolutely. If there's a medical condition that is personally identifiable for a person, all of a sudden becomes available because an unintended consequence is accidentally released to the public. It can happen. So, where does something like a FOIA request fit in? So, this is information that is is recently (laughs) publicly available. So, last week it was not publicly available. Uh, A a reporter comes in and. uh, it could be about crop prices. It could be about uh, satellites. It could be about something. So, so this, is a, this is a changing territory. Maybe that's some of the uh, concepts that the committee is going to come together with trying to find, okay, uh, at what time and, and what place is this public identifiable information? I guess the question is when. You know, so so do you think this is going to be a concept that we talk about in the future with this committee, the PAC committee? Well, I think that the definition of
1: publicly available information is clearly articulated in this directive. That is not something that the, the advisory council or committee Needs to spend time redefining how to deal with it. I think will be the focus of this group. Not only how to deal with it, but how to access it, how to make use of it, and what tools should be used in order to leverage it.
0: I want to touch bases again on this term: mandate and directive and guidelines, suggestion, best practices. And so uh, so right now, we're really in the incipient stages of defining exactly what publicly available information is. It seems like it's going to take three or four years and a lot of input and maybe some uh, unintentional consequences in order to come up with more specific definitions of how it can be defined today and changed in the future. Would you agree that these terms are kind of difficult to define right now?
1: I hope it doesn't take two or three years <laughs> for us to, to figure it all out. It um, could be an event. Clearly, mm-hmm. clearly, we're more and more interested – in providing guidance across a larger team to leverage an important resource in a responsible fashion. So I would anticipate that the pack will move rather quickly once it begins meeting. And I do also believe that we'll continue to see things happening in the outside world that is going to make this increasingly important to all affected.
0: My son has some friends who uh, are in the special forces. I never know where these guys are. And <laughs> They don't tell me. They could be any. We could flip a coin, name a country week to week. They're moving all the time. The point is that the military is kind of distributed or federated in many different areas. And so, so what happens when one person in one area maybe interprets this directive differently than a person in another area? I mean this could happen, couldn't it?
1: Yes, it can happen. It does happen. And in many respects, it's part of the, the goodness of the, the military model where we have lots of creative people out there solving important problems differently. And I think that the challenge is 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 that when we find those best practices, if you will, to make them common across the larger team. And one of the things that excites me about this directive and the path that it sets out is that for the time being, it will leverage creative problem solvers across the force to deal with publicly available information how to protect it in some cases, and how to leverage it in other cases. And over time, these shared tactics, techniques, and procedures should become commonplace across the broader team.
0: You know, you take the metro a couple stops, you wind up at NIH. I'm sure NIH has a lot of very uh, sensitive information, and some of it's going to be released to the public, some isn't. You know, VA hospital is the same thing. I'm sure that at uh, Treasury they have information that's going to be difficult. So I think we're at the position now where uh, trying to establish guidelines for a responsible platform that would allow secure access to public information, not only to DOD, but there's other agencies as well. So that's where we're at now, trying to come up with some kind of a platform. Is that right? Yes. And there are many platforms out there,
1: um, some better than others. And I think that as a uh, as a taxpayer, one of the things that interests me about this approach um, is enterprise level solutions. So rather than having each individual unit or organization across the Department of Defense make a decision to purchase a different platform, there's goodness in sharing a, a platform across a larger enterprise, not only from a perspective of being a nomadic analyst that moves across the the force over time and doesn't have to learn new tools, but also from a pricing standpoint as
0: well. Oh, great. I'd like to thank today's guest, Sean Heritage, head of platform adoption federal at Authenticate. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, and you're listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.